0: This is Shane Holloway, one of Stephen Hall's all time great, here with my guys from Left Coast Pirates. Let's get it.
1: Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul. Whitehead
2: ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the
1: world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate. From San Diego, California, he is Mike Dizzy Dizzieri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Good evening, Michael. How you doing tonight?
2: Good evening, Tommy. You know what? T- tonight's a different night for me when we start this podcast. Normally, I got some kind of monologue set up to talk about Seton Hall in the week that has passed by, but for our most sports fans – the news has just been different today with the passing of Kobe Bryant and it. It kind of puts things into perspective. We come on a show like this and, and we are, you joke and say we're fanboys. And, you know, we're, we get into it about the team and the players. And sometimes we put them all on a pedestal. That's probably, you know, at, at a level that we can't relate sometimes to who they are as people. And we forget that. And, and then we have a tragedy that has just occurred to Kobe and, and his family and we take a step back and realize that they are just ordinary people, uh, just like us. And sometimes I think we lose sight of that. And today is a little bit humbling and a little bit sad. And I—it's I, just a, it's a different day in the sports world. So we're—we're going to move on and kind of do this podcast to the best of our ability. But I think across the sports landscape, it's a—it's a bit of a somber mood. So to talk about Final Four and top twenty-five and what's going to happen next week, it just kind of puts a different perspective on life sometimes. I also thought it was a nice gesture to look across the NBA and see what they did at the start of the games. Uh, for example, the, the Knicks and the Nets. You know, They agreed that after the opening tip, both teams would take a 24-second violation in honor of his number, and in both instances, the fans got to their feet, gave a standing ovation in, in, in honoring him and his passing. Instead of doing a kind of standard like moment of silence before the game, just something unique, something different. And I, I thought it was a nice tribute by. Uh, the garden audience
1: well this was a sad day losing someone of Kobe bryant's stature but you know what it it hit me a little harder when we found out that his 13 year old daughter died mike you've got kids i've got three girls my oldest is 13 so it's very sad to even think that someone just at the beginning of their life it, it, it it's all over for them you know it's very very sad We will try to go through this and make sure that, you know, we cover all our normal bases, but our hearts and thoughts are going out to the Bryant family as we record this right now. So... On this week's podcast, we will review the Seton Hall Providence game. We go behind enemy lines with the Paul Ryder, Dan Stack. We will preview the Xavier game. And this week's road to 2494 has a special guest with Greg Tynes, fourth on the all-time Seton Hall scoring list. But first... Seton Hall, 73, Providence, 64. The first 11 minutes belonged to Romaro Gill. Four total flushes gave the Pirates an early 22-16 lead. Providence would not be deterred. They went on a mini 8-0 run to take their first lead of the game. But after a Shavar Reynolds three-pointer, the Hall would end the half on a 6-0 run to take their own lead going into the locker room. In the second half, the Pirates maintained the lead between Between five to nine points for a majority of the play. After two miles, Powell free throws ballooned the game up to eleven points. Providence wouldn't roll over and trimmed it down to five before Q found Jared Roden on a sweet assist under the basket to ice the game. All right, Tommy, stats for the game.
2: Big surprise. Tonight's leading scorer is not Miles Powell. That distinction goes to Romaro Gill, seventeen points on eight of ten from the field. And another six rebounds, not to mention a career-high eight blocks. Jared Roden stepped up big with 15 points and eight rebounds. Quincy McKnight was once again rock steady with 11 and eight assists and Miles Powell had 14 points on only six shots from the field. On the other side of the floor, Alpha Diallo led the Providence Friars with 13 points and eight rebounds, and David Duke, off of 36 points in his last game, only put in nine. Positive notes, the Hall held Providence to 4 27 from three-point range at a clip of 17% and 36% overall from the field for the game. Conversely, the Pirates shot 56% and 72% from inside the arc alone. However, there were some areas of opportunity to improve upon. The hole did get out rebounded 31 to 25, specifically Providence crashing the offensive glass to a tune of 19 total rebounds.
1: So, Mike, you know, while we're watching this game, it was a real disjointed game. You know, it didn't look like we ever got to full speed just as compared to these other games that we've won. I mean, and now we're getting real nitpicky. I mean, the Big E's record right now is 7-0. and Our winning streak's up to 9. And we're going to take every little thing and complain about it. But was it just me, or didn't it look like they were getting motivated for this game?
2: It's not that they weren't motivated. It just clearly was not their best brand of basketball. And but you step back, and go but they still won the game they were mainly in control in the second half I mean there were a couple moments where the lead got down to three but it, it, as you said in your recap it basically teetered between five to nine for most of the game it, it ballooned to 11 late did you really feel like the Hall was threatened to lose that game in the second half?
1: No, not in the least bit. I mean, even, you know, w- when it got close, when they got that lead late in the first half, I always thought they had that next gear to go into and we're going to take over and we're going to be fine.
2: They didn't have that gear, uh, obviously, but, you know, they made the baskets when they had to. You know, they dug down defensively. I, I think what was interesting that kind of just makes you kind of step back and go, and eh, I'm not sure if it was our best night. Powell's your third leading scorer. I mean, how many times are we going to win a game, not necessarily handily, but comfortably when Powell is not going to be leading the charge, right?
1: It's not even that he wasn't even leaving the charge, Mike. He took six shots.
2: We, we've we criticized him at times for saying that, you know what, when he puts up 20 plus, he
1: could be a little more efficient. I, I didn't want to see him go to that extreme. Let's just be honest. <laughs> but you know what? He did what he needed to do, and that was good enough, I guess. And 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 once again, Romaro Gill, beast mode. In conference play now, 13 points a game, six and a half rebounds a game, and almost four and a half blocks a game. I tweeted it out earlier in this week. I said, what is more surprising, Michael, when Romaro gets eight blocks or when Romaro gets zero blocks? I'm telling you, I'm he got zero in Marquette, and I thought it was a mistake. How does he not get a block?
2: The numbers are eye, eye opening, right? And and they're turning heads. And now he's getting the recognition. And there were some jokes of you know, is he is he most improved player? Is he Big East Defensive Player of the Year? I think he's working his way right now into being arguably the best center in the Big East. So that's, that's got to put him into consideration for potentially some all Big East recognition come the end of the year from a possibly first or second team perspective. I, I think first is pushing
1: it a little bit, but man, I, I wouldn't have expected Gil to be in that type of conversation. But if he continues these numbers, what holds him back? I mean, there's nobody in the league doing what he's doing. I'm sorry. I,
2: I, I have no argument there. He, he If he continues on this path in conference play, averaging You know, 13 points, six and a half boards, and four blocks. That's a crazy number. If a guy averages one block a game, that's solid. He's averaging four. He'll he'll be in the mix. He he will be. I don't know where he's going to shake out, but he will be in the mix for some hardware. What I think gets lost is he had some support on the front line as well, and you're always taking shots at him, or whether you're taking shots at me, I can't figure it out anymore.
1: I can't figure it out. so not right, Michael. I am not always taking shots at the kid. You're, you're, Who are we you're, talking you're, about, Michael? Go ahead, your t- boy. We're talking
2: about Jared Roden. You thought he was a little overhyped. You didn't see it early in the season. That is and let's, not the case, man. I go, I'll go back and get the audio clips. In Vicky's play alone, Jared as well is averaging about nine points a game and also about six rebounds. And in this game, he was 15 and eight. He was not forcing the three-point shot. I know he hit one early to get it going, but he's just been doing the dirty work underneath. And that's where he gets to use his athleticism as, a, as an undersized four, kind of creating those mismatches, grabbing the ball off the wing and attacking the basket. I, I like his game and how it's evolving so far
1: this year again what's more important than the numbers he's putting up is that he's doing it within the flow of the offense he's not forcing it he looks good he looks solid i like it i like what i'm seeing but I, I, let's, I, get let's get go back let's get back to what i said before let's nitpick because that's what we do
2: you don't want to give shavar reynolds his due first before we move on you don't I don't have to he be had a the great one to give game him off life. the bench.
1: Did he not? I was very pleased with how he was setting up other players. He had, I think one or two good assists uh, during the game in the flow. It was very nice.
2: We've been asking for Shavar to play within the, the, the confines of the offense, not to force too much. Yeah. Now, you ready for this? I, I, I'm going to criticize here. I thought there was a couple opportunities where Shavar should have shot the ball. We worked the ball around. We got it to him open on the wing once, and he had a wide-open three for about four feet from his defender. He pump fakes. the, The defender closes out on him. He pump fakes again. Then he drives to the middle, and he makes a very difficult pass to McKnight, who finishes underneath the basket. So the end result was great, and Shavar had a couple of moments like that where he used better judgment versus shooting to get into the lane and create for others. But if our offense can create an open shot like that, I want to see Shavart take that three-pointer.
1: Don't you? I, I'm not going down this rabbit hole, Mike. I, he had a good – he had a nice game. I'm I, – Nothing I'm writing home about. So, okay, let's just move on. Let's Can we go to something we could really nitpick about, please? I, I, I don't want to nitpick. I want to keep on, like, you know, expounding upon what this team is doing
2: well. In addition to Shavar playing well, I think we need to kind of step back and also appreciate how good this team is becoming defensively. You know, we're talking about how guys are finding their roles on the offense, but they have found their groove defensively as a team. You know, they have an identity now. It's, you know, let the big guys be the erasers and everybody else kind of get up into their guy. Right now, we are currently ranked 13th in the Ken Palm adjusted defensive efficiency against the eighth hardest schedule in the country. That's
1: pretty impressive. You know, it helps the guys out in the wings that they know if they... Make a mistake, they got the great eraser behind them. I mean, even when he's not blocking his shots, though they are shots are being affected, and I wish there was a true way to really make a stat out of it how different the shot attempts are because of Ike and more gill back there. I I, I get it. But Now, if if you want to nitpick, fine. Let's nitpick. I
2: I was struggling to find a name for this next segment. I mean, logically, it should just be called like opportunities to get better. But but what fun is that, right? So then I thought, why don't we just have some fun and call it Tom's Glass is Half Empty, the Complaints (laughs) Corner or something like that. But but that's that's just not fair. I don't want to ruin your impeccable image here. So eventually I landed on the following. Let's call it Sour grapes and grapes. Okay, I, mean, I like it. That, that's what I we like do, it. right? The, I like all it. Right, so, so it's so Tommy. Even though we've won the game and we are seven and zero in first place, I want your thoughts on the following topics for our first ever sour grapes and Gripes segment. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Nineteen offensive rebounds that kept Providence in the game.
1: I mean, if if we box out, we blow them out by twenty, right? Well, that comes back to doing the little things. And I think last summer when we talked to J.P. Pelsman, one of the things he says was the team just didn't do the little things well. He pointed out picks. But, yeah, boxing out's another thing. And I'll tell you what, you had this big diatribe on the bigs when they would block the balls and the other team would get second shots out of it or points off of it. And it would sounded like you were blaming the bigs, but, you know, I think it's just because you missed the good old days of the slow-footed, vertically challenged Seton Hall centers that you grew up to love and canonize. But this isn't a center problem. Like you mentioned, Mike, it's boxing out. It's simple boxing out. It's doing that thing that drove us crazy with Desi, just watching the ball. The ball goes up, it gets blocked. Oh, look, I'm watching, I'm watching. I'm not looking to put my butt into a player. So yeah, box out. It's basic basketball. You've been screamed at it since you were in rec league, since you were in fifth grade basketball. Do it, and this won't happen as much. It wasn't Nate Watson. It was
2: Alpha Diallo. And Alpha Diallo's, you know, undersized four. You know, sometimes he plays some three. And there were multiple times that he crashed the glass. And it depended on who the assignment was, but it was McKnight. It was Roden. And as well as they played in the game, yeah, they just flat out blatantly missed box out opportunities. And Diallo's coming in crashing the glass for an easy deuce. There's an opportunity for Willard to go back to the film and actually come up with a coaching moment after this game. I'll give you another one. you ready. So I'm going to take a shot at Roden here. Believe it or not. Roden, in my opinion, needs to improve his free throw shooting based on how much he plays underneath the rim. I think he was what? Two of six in this last
1: game. Okay. I'm going to actually defend your boy, Jared Roden here. So, Yes, in the out-of-conference schedule, Roden was shooting 63% from the line, which is not acceptable for a player of his talent a, as a shooter like him. But actually, if you take away the Providence game, he has improved greatly. In Big e's play before the Providence game, he was shooting 76% from the free throw line. You pull in a two-for-six performance, and yes, it drops it down to 66. But that number's climbing. Mike, you're going to take 76% from the kid. That's that's a good number for him. Look at you. I'm the encyclopedia. Look at you throwing the stats around. I came prepared I, today, I, like, I, I'm, 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 to I'm humbled.
2: I'm humbled. Okay, I'm moving on. I'm going to throw you another stat. And I think this number's a little inflated. But the attendance at this game was 9,267. I believe the lower bowl sells out at like 10,000 plus, but it, it didn't just feel like the crowd was impactful. It, I, I heard reports that the, the corners were pretty much empty. And here's my biggest gripe relative to the attendance. As Seton Hall's running out the clock under a minute to go, that game was pretty close up until those final moments. And as Seton Hall's running out that clock, they kind of pan back out a little bit. And you see all the seats behind the scorers table in the middle section at center court completely empty. Did the fans really need
1: to head to the exits? You're to gonna basically save 45 seconds. You're of gonna hear you're gonna hear the same old excuses. It's a Wednesday game. It's an 8:30 start, which actually means it's more like a 8:45, 8:50 start before everything gets going. I get it. You know what? We're not that program that's in the top 10 every year. We are a top 10 team. This is a Big East game. Shame on the fans for not showing up. Shame on the fans for leaving early. You only get 20 games a season for home games. Not even. We played so get many games them. on the road
2: this year, right? Get we got, we got them. Get not- them. Nine games in the Big East. I think we played six home games in this non-conference. That's 15 games to see Miles Powell. You're down to the final five or six home games, and and you're not going to come out to fill the building. Once again, maybe it sounds like sour grapes, but I mean, be there, be a part of the moment. And yes, there were times where the crowd got behind them to kind of boost up the defensive effort, but it just seemed that because Providence was getting all these offensive rebounds and preventing the big run run, or we didn't hit that big three pointer that the crowd just never you know, put their emotions over the
1: top. I, I don't get that. I don't get that at all. No, it, it's a, it's a bad turnout for the crowd. Let's move on.
2: All right. Here, here's my last one. And, and this one kind of gets me, but, but I really hate this phrase. It's miles Powell being out, help this team learn how to win without him making them a better team. And, and I'm probably going to catch some grief for this one, but I'm going to throw you some stats. Anthony Nelson in this last game played a total of eight minutes and he finished with zero points and zero assists. And over the course of the last four games, he's only averaging 10 minutes a game scored a total of 11 points. And he has four assists against eight turnovers. What happened to the Anthony Nelson that averaged 36 and a half minutes per game versus Maryland and Prairie view scoring double figures in both games and dishing out 11 assists, Compared to five steals. He was the guy who was turning the corner when miles was out I don't see that right now. What's your take on that?
1: Well, you you know, you're absolutely correct You know, Anthony Nelson has been up and down this year And so is miles kale if we're gonna throw out another name of a player But you did say you, you had a problem with the quote and the quote said that the team learned how to win with miles being out now you said team and now you're pulling out individual stats. So which one is it? Personally, <laughs> I think the question the better question is this. With all the credit that Coach Willard gets for player development, with Roe jumping into the all Biggies conversations and Miles Powell becoming, you know, preseason all American pick, everyone's giving him all this credit at being this player development guy. My question is this What about the regression in players like Nelson and, and Kale? Why do this, the positives always stick with the coaches? And I don't mean just Kevin Willard in this case, I mean countrywide. You know, every time a player does well or a team gets well, it's because they have that great coach behind them. But when there are negatives, People always point and say, What's wrong with the kid? How come he's not playing well? How come it's not this? I think it's time to ask this question because Kale is not playing up to his potential. Anthony Nelson is definitely not playing up to his potential. And what's going on with this? I
2: don't really have an answer. And I didn't want to dive into into it to that extent as to why it bothers me. I just think it's it's a lazy brand of writing because you're reading it from national kind of bloggers that kind of are now jumping in and riding the bandwagon of Seton Hall. Now that they're in the top 10, Oh, they could be a final four contender. And let's, let's write a nice story and let's go back to when they turn the corner versus Maryland. Yeah. I, I think the defense turned a corner. And I, I think they realized that they needed to learn how to win on the defensive end first and that miles wasn't going to always bail them out. But where I think that the player development is making a difference has not been the two games that miles was, uh, was not in the lineup. Yes. It showed that Nelson could step in and play extended minutes. If he has to, I mean, he, he played 35 plus in both of those games. I think it jump started Q Q realized that, Hey, in these two games, I have to take on a heavy responsibility for the offensive load. And then when Powell came back, they told him, don't take a back seat now. Continue to do what you're doing. That's going to make us a better team. But the injury that's opening the door for other guys has been the injury to Sandro. You're seeing the development of Samuel. You're seeing Roden take his game to another level and play that four and get those rebounds underneath the rim that makes him a – an integral part of the offense instead of shooting as many three pointers as he was. I I don't know if it was Powell being out. I think it was just desperation of having to win and other guys stepped up for a game or two. And now people are kind of finding their roles better. I I don't think this team can win without miles Powell over an extended period of time. I, I just, I'm not a fan of that statement.
1: So Mike, we're talking about things that can get better things that we see that might not be perfect yet. So, Hey, let's talk about some concerns that we may have moving forward. Are the teams in the biggies beginning to build a blueprint that they can use to beat us? Don't you think so? I mean, I know they won the
2: last two games and this is going to kind of wrap up our sour grapes section, but Anderson from St. John's instituted the press. We had some struggles. I'm I'm less concerned with teams pressing us because, you know, I, I don't think they have the depth or the horses to do it as consistently as St. John's did, but In certain segments of the game, we saw it against Oregon. We see it at other points when teams are kind of trying to rally back. We struggle with that aspect or element of the game. So, yes, I think ball pressure on Seton Hall, full court, three-quarters court, there's a bit of a blueprint there. My other concern was I know Providence lost this game. I know they've been struggling, but I'm going to give Ed Cooley some kudos here. I thought what he did with his 2-3 zone completely took away the pick-and-roll from McKnight like and Gill Gill comes out on fire in that game. And, and it can't be stopped and scored what 13 points in the first half, 15 points in the first half and finishes with 17. It was immediately attributed to the fact that Cooley went to a zone and then he wasn't getting the same touches at the rim. Right. And the last element of this zone that I want to kind of call to, the, uh, to your attention before I throw it back to you is when Powell got the ball, they came out of the two, three zone and immediately jump them with a double team, forcing him to give up the ball and have others beat him. So it was it wasn't a direct face guarding, but it was all right, we're gonna we're gonna hang back. And the minute Miles gets it, we're gonna force Miles to move the ball. So if there's a hybrid of that strategy where there's more extended pressure, they fall back into a two-three zone and they take Powell out of the game
1: like Providence did, y- yeah, I- I'm a little bit concerned. Are you? You know, I'm gonna go the other way today. I'm gonna say I'm in a good place. We're being way too negative after a 7-0 run in the Big East so far, so Mike, I can't end it. I can't continue anymore. Let's stop our sour grapes and gripes on this note, Mike. Yes, there are things we could always improve on, every team can improve on, but let us remember, we're first place in the Big East. We've got a 7-0 run going. We've got 10 quad one and two wins combined, and we haven't peaked yet. And we still have good news coming. It's like a late Christmas gift, Mike. Sandro's coming back. The best is yet to come. I I wanna say that all that was stupid, but it wasn't. It was spot on, but you know what?
2: There was some stupid stuff the announcer said today.
1: <laughs> what though, you don't like my segue?
2: Come on, Tommy. We're, you know, we, these Segways we're... are not easy to do here, buddy.
1: No, no, yeah, that was nice. All right.
2: All right. But, but I want to change it up now. I mean, we have to kind of clean up our brand a little bit, right? I mean, we call it the stupid stuff the announcer said, and in order to be more sensitive to our growing audience and create more of like a positive family listening experience, I think we got to change the title. I mean, I, I know that my good friend, his nine-year-old son, listens to the show on the way to the games, and I, I don't think we should call it stupid stuff the announcer says. I, I say going forward, we mix it up to, did they
1: really say that? Uh, it's a little softer, a little, a little cleaner for the brand. Are you you okay with that? It's a fine name change, Mike, and I, I actually kind of like it. So, Mike, who said what, and did they really say that?
2: All right, so I thought that Sarah Kustak was doing a great job with Brian Custer, and all she needed to do was finish strong over the final moments of the game, but it, it just didn't work out that way. With 20 seconds to play, Nate Watson gets called for his fifth foul on a moving screen, and Sarah's response was, wow, that is a game changer. And I'm sitting there going, what did she expect Nate Watson to do in the last 20 seconds to help help them overcome a
1: three-possession deficit down seven? I mean, Nate, Nate can't even shoot a three-pointer. What am I missing here, Sarah? Well, at least she wasn't talking about Romaro Gill in the kitchen this time, Michael. So, I mean, you know, it, it, it could be worse. Her and Brian Custer did a good job for the most part of the game. And, and yo, Brian Custer is up to what now? 24-0 in covering Seton Hall games. So I'm hoping he's coming back for a few more games, especially the Nova games. I think he's up
2: next again on the DePaul game, but 24-0 and 0 is a pretty crazy uh, and outside-of-the-box streak that we're following here. It, it is kind of funny.
1: Speaking of the DePaul game, Mike, it's coming up this Wednesday, and while we didn't have him on before the first DePaul game, we're going to welcome someone who knows the team very well to help us get behind enemy lines. He has been a featured columnist for Bleacher Report, as well as a blogger for New York Giants rush.com and Mets360.com. Currently is a senior writer for We Are DePaul. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Dan Stack. Dan, how are you today? Doing good.
3: Uh, we're actually speaking on a, a solemn day. I mean, it's just tragic to hear the news of Kobe Bryant, you know. But otherwise, let's push on.
2: I hear you, Dan. Thanks again for joining the show. You're welcome. All right, so right to it. So there's no secret that the Paul for the last decade has been, you know, for lack of a better word, the proverbial doormat of the Big East. In fact, last season was their first overall record greater than 500, dating all the way back to the 2006-2007 season under Jerry Wainwright. Given all of that, what was the excitement level around the program after they got off to that torrid start at 12-1 and in non-conference play?
3: everything's hunky-dory. Everything was peaches and cream. Everybody thought this was a new DePaul team that was going to be reborn. And uh, it was just, we were getting magical reviews. We were in the bracketology. We were in plenty of top 25s, although we never got ranked in the AP or coaches poll. But, you know, people like Seth Davis and Andy Katz had him, had us in their top 25s, and, and the buzz was building. And and ever since that uh, first game against Seton Hall, that, that, that's that's that unraveled a lot of things, and then we thought we uh, hit a you know a high note when we beat Butler, ranked number f- you know five in the country, and then we lose two more. So a lot of the, the wind out of the sailer has uh, taken out some of the, the joy, and you know we're all grappling with the uh, the pieces now.
1: Yeah, so that explains how the fans are feeling, I guess. But what is this state of emotions with the team right now? And is everyone starting to think that? Oh my goodness, here we go again.
3: Yeah, that's what you we were afraid of but he said, Let's wait until the Big East starts, we'll see who we're really made of and now they're saying everybody got us right and we're not good. But that's just not true. I mean we have a really talented team that just haven't learned to to win yet. I mean to to sustain that what it takes to win constant consistently and their confidence is just being shaken right now and um being swept by Saint John's. I mean, they're a good team. They're every team in the Big East is loaded from, you know, top to bottom. I, I really don't think that's a bad team in here but one on the road at Iowa, we won on the road in Minnesota, we won, at, we won at Boston College, we won versus Texas Tech and Butler at home. This is a good team. They just, they just can't get any consistency. And the big issue is just the, the outside shooting. It's just it's just miserable. I mean, I was just looking at the the first time Seton Hall and the ball played. I mean, you guys got Miles Powell back, and you guys shot 35% from three. We shot 5 of 21, 23.8%. So we need outside shooting to have any chance, and when we're not, we just we're just beatable.
2: You know, but but I agree that this team is, you know, it, it's got reasons to believe in them. I mean, they're clearly not devoid of talent. I mean, let's just start with Paul Reed. In my opinion, he is a first team, all big East caliber player right now. The guy is a double, double machine. He's averaging 16 and 11 on the year. And in his last game recorded his 14th double, double already on on the season. I mean, for the rest of the country who hasn't seen him yet. I mean, how good is this guy?
3: Uh, he's phenomenal. I mean, he's basically in every mock draft now. He's going in, uh, I just last week, uh, last time I checked, going in the first round in seven. He's just so athletic, long, such great footwork. He's not a great shooter, and that's one big problem of his. Although he did well last year, but this year he just hasn't carried over. But he's just a beast around the hoop. He just His long arms just snatch rebounds putbacks he's always in the right spot at the right time it's just hard drawing up plays from when the teams are trying to take him out and then that's been a problem in big east play but um, he's just a uh, phenomenal and he's only getting better he's just he's very he's a bit on more muscle a little better with handles but otherwise he's i think he's a lock for a first team unit de paul finishes in last place some sometimes the coaches take that in effect but i don't i think he's going to be a, a first teamer like you said
1: Now, as good as Paul Reed is, it appears that the X factor for this team is point guard Charlie Moore. How impactful was it getting him a waiver eligibility granted for this year?
3: Oh, it was huge. Obviously, he's a transfer from Kansas. He first started out at Cal. He just was buried behind really good guards at Kansas, and his father was sick. Um, He just wanted to come home. He's been relaxed at home. He's he was phenomenal in DePaul's non-conference rise when they were doing well. A good shooter, distributor. He's a former four-star recruit. I mean, I think he's really playing back to that level. He's just very inconsistent right now. He's, he's not. His efficiency numbers are pretty bad. He takes a lot of bad shots. Sometimes he wants to play hero ball, but when he's on, he's on. Like he was phenomenal when Paul almost made that comeback at Villanova. He was. He was the one leading them. He tied the He tied the game up at the last second before overtime. He's the heart and soul, but he's got to be more efficient. He's got to be uh, take better care of the ball. Turnovers and just shot selection are uh, killers right now for him. But otherwise, he's very talented, and when he's on, he's on.
2: Well, speaking of players that have become immediately eligible, DePaul recently added grad transfer DJ Williams to the roster. Now, to me, it's it's fairly uncommon to see a midseason roster add like this. Explain how this all came about and why Dave Leto thinks that He'd be a good addition at this point in the season.
3: Yeah, he's another another local kid. He's a Chicago kid. He went to Simeon, which is uh, the same school as Derrick Rose. And they're just trying to build up a connection with the uh, Chicago players. He started Illinois, didn't do well there. Uh, Went to George Washington, had a good season last year, 13 points. He's another player that is a very high-volume scorer, not very efficient either. Very active. He was another top 100 recruit, and he wanted to come home once he got the coursework done in December. He wanted to go back home, and they said, All right, they did it. And then he's just slowly working his way into it. He didn't play the first game. He was uh, eligible versus Butler. Then he played like four minutes against Creighton, something like that. And then he played like 10 minutes on Saturday to the loss. Uh, but he's very active. He's, he's strong 6 7, 215. Can play the guard or forward positions, but not a great shooter, but very lengthy and athletic, and he's good on the break. So that's what they're hoping to get some punch off the bench, which has been a big issue for DePaul. But they play their starters so much, and uh, they're hoping they can he can lessen some burdens off the off the second uh, second string.
2: I just found it interesting that he was actually roommates of Jalen Coleman Lands when they both played back in Illinois. That was kind of an interesting nugget when I was reading up on him.
3: Yeah. They, they they played at Illinois. Both didn't feel comfortable there. They both transferred. I guess when Underwood was hired at Illinois, they both wanted to change the scenery, especially for uh, DJ Williams because he really didn't do well. I think he averaged like two points a game. But yeah, that, they have a connection and they've been saying, you know, Jalen has said that uh, he's a brother to him and he's been showing him the ropes around campus and he's been his... Uh, his guide all along in, in, in helping the process so far.
1: Now in the first game against the Pirates, Paul actually held the lead as late as 2.36 left to play, but a 9-0 run by Seton Hall closed the game out. Should we expect as closely a contested battle this time around?
3: Their sense of urgency has to be high, um, and uh, as you guys probably know, they swept Seton Hall last year. I mean, they're they could thanks, play with them. I mean, thanks, Dan,
1: for yeah. bringing that up. Thank you. <laughs> still made the
3: NCAA tournament, so. <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
3: But you know, they match up well with them. I, I, I mean, there's certain teams to pull. Don't match up well. That's the uh, the patient, extreme three point shooting, methodical teams like Creighton. Especially those teams come to mind. But that was a big game for. Um, from a, from our perspective, I think that was a game that got Romero Gill going. He was big down the stretch there. It's major blocks. They couldn't get anything going down low, and they just fell apart in the last, like you said, the last few minutes. And I, I think they match up well. I think they just got to contain, somehow try to contain Powell. I don't know. You know, you can't stop him, but you can only hope to contain him, like you say, the old cliche and just hoping that our good defender like romeo weems is our our specialty defender he plays a lot of point guards and main scoring for very highly recruited player coming out of michigan he got burned by powell on a on a three-point attempt late in the game that really set them back in their attempts to win that game so they're just gonna draw from what they, they saw in the first game and try to apply some different uh schemes play uh Uh, a game similar to it, but a better ending for them is hopefully in their cards.
2: So, so Dan, I'll challenge you for a second here. I I think most people are going to see it the way you see it, where you look back at that game and say, all right, it was highlighted by Miles Powell's return to the lineup, 27 points, 18 coming in the second half, and essentially he's probably the difference maker. But I looked at it a little differently. I I thought the key to the victory for both teams lies at the point guard spot, and Quincy McKnight limited Charlie Moore in the second half to 1-6 of from the field, and five turnovers. I mean, do you think that's the matchup we should be highlighting in this upcoming game?
3: Oh, yeah. you got to look for a, a steady Charlie Moore to have any chance. I'm looking at hitting eight turnovers. in And that was, that's brutal. You cannot win when your starting point guard has eight turnovers. On the flip side, the default did a good job of limiting Knight on the offensive side. I don't think he had a good game. I was looking at his guy; He was one for six in the four for four points. So that, I, I expect better out... out outputs from both point cards this this game and yeah if Charlie Moore is turning the ball over more than three times and is shooting less than like 40 percent that's that's going to do him poll so that's a yeah like you said that's huge
1: so Dan you mentioned earlier that the polls having a lot of struggles from the outside is it more of a shot selection uh situation or is it just straight up that they're not hitting good shots a
3: little bit of both but I think it mainly stems from not good ball rotation. They don't get good paint touches inside and work from side to side. They're jacking up a lot of threes, especially more in Jalen lands. They, they feel they have to play hero ball a lot of times. They just shot awful in the game against Seton all the first time. They just shot like 20% or something in that range, 20 to 25% in the, the loss just now to St. John's. They, they just have to get some connection going from the three. If you, if you looked at all their good wins... Iowa, Texas State, Butler. They really shoot the ball well. They got they got to get going. They got to get Butts, Jalen Butts, our big man, and Paul Reed going inside. That open up some things, and that'll set it up. That'll set up a, 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 good, a good blueprint to win. But they got to get something going down low first. They establish that first. And yes, their shot selection is bad when they're trailing. Yeah, it's a, a matter of shot selection and execution on their part
2: so I agree with you Dan but when you look back at those big wins this year versus Iowa Texas Tech and Butler not only did DePaul shoot well from the field but specifically Jalen Coleman lands had gone off on big scoring nights is he the x-factor for this team to pull off the big upset Wednesday night I know we keep on highlighting Charlie Moore but to me it seems like when Coleman lands goes off you guys are in the win column
3: yeah Pretty much. If he has an off night, I, don't, I, I think all the off nights he's really had are the Big East losses, and he really needs to be confident. He usually heats up late. Sometimes it's a little too late for the final outcome to matter. If you saw, he made the tie-in three-point shot against Texas Tech. he's He plays on a lot of emotion and adrenaline. Yeah, he's got to be confident because he, he's been shooting like 30% the last couple of games and this is, he's got to be close to like 35 36 to have any for us to have any shot winning. He's an emotional player. He's a very uh very talented heads up player, but he his shot selection sometimes can be awful too. But if he's in the flow of the game and they're they're passing the ball and spreading the ball well, he could be a very big X factor. Yeah, definitely.
1: Okay, Dan, we're going to put you on the spot. What is your prediction for this game?
3: Uh, I don't know. Let's just say uh yeah, maybe the spirit has been broken of this team. I'm just gonna <laughs> just try to be optimistic, po- optimist, but I'm gonna say they're gonna I'm gonna, gonna say they're gonna give him a fight and Seaton Hall is gonna win by two. I'll say seventy six to seventy
1: four. Close game. Dan, then you know, not a whole lot of writers picked Seaton Hall so far during our segments here. So kudos to you for actually going that direction. Mm.
3: I was going to ask you guys, is Sandro going to be playing on, you think, Wednesday? It's
2: it's in the wind right now. So one of the guys who covers the team pretty closely tweeted that he practiced on Friday and now he's uncertain for Wednesday. And all the media reports up until that last tweet was basically he's going to miss the entire homestand. So we're back to the whole Kevin Willard playing cat and mouse with the media. I think he plays now.
3: Yeah, that was the – and switch. They, uh, that I recall leading up to the first game, Miles Powell was yeah, yeah barely play, or we'll get him like five minutes to get him up to speed, and he came out like a yeah, he played him thirty five plus that
1: game. Yeah, yeah, just... yeah, but you know what? When Miles twisted his ankle early in the season, it was like, oh, we might have to amputate. He might not be back till Biggie's play, and this, that, the other thing. And then, obviously, with the concussion, it was, uh, as you saw. So, you know, it won't shock me if Sandro comes in and plays 30 minutes, and it won't shock me if Sandro comes in and plays five. So, we'll see. You know what? I, I think there's
2: a difference this time around. When Powell came back, they, they have avoided void at the two guard. I mean, they have Shavar Reynolds, who's a walk-on, converted to a scholarship player. So, I, I there's there's really nobody there to kind of play miles minutes. They've gotten a lot of contributions at the four with Roden and Samuel. So I think they'll ease him back in more than we saw with Powell. I just do. Plus, it's kind of like if ain't broke, don't fix it right now. I mean, the team's playing so well. If you integrate him back in for 30 minutes right off the bat, does that mess up the chemistry? You know, there are some questions out there.
3: Yeah, I was just going to ask you guys that. I, I kind of want him to play for my for myself's region. I think <laughs> the roles roles will shift and they don't, you know, they'll be, you know, out of sync a little bit, you know, throw off the chemistry of Tabby because they're just they're absolutely rolling right
1: now. Yeah, no without but, a doubt, you know, will it'll be an interesting thing, you know, from from my perspective. I think because Rodin and Samuel have stepped up so well, you know, they, he'll have an easier shot of not having to do as much to begin with. So I think he'll try to kind of meld in more than anything else, but we but, shall but, see. But I,
2: but, I think he's the guy that puts them over the top that makes them a better team than Villanova because of their interchangeable parts at the three and the four. And I also think he's a, the kind of guy that gives them a mismatch. Once you put all your focus around Gill and the other big guys, I think he's the guy that gives him the mismatch that could take him to the Final Four. I I might be overreaching, but I think he's that important.
3: He's very talented, that's, that's
2: for sure. See, well, Tom, see, Tom. other people say
1: he's talented. Well, Dan, thanks for joining <laughs> us and giving us a behind-enemies-lines uh, look at DePaul. We really appreciate you coming on. Not a problem. I'd love to do it again. Excellent. Thank you, Dan Stack. So, Mike, you know, Dan brought out some great points about DePaul as we talked to him. But, you know, here's an interesting piece that we started touching on, but it really deserves its own kind of piece here, Mike. The return of Sandro to the lineup. You know, as per Zach Braziller, this Sunday morning, he tweeted out, Sandro's return to practice on Friday. His status for Wednesday against DePaul is uncertain. And we all know what that means with Kevin Willard. He could be playing possum. He played possum twice with uh, Miles, first with the ankle, then with the concussion. So why wouldn't he be playing possum here? Uh, I've given up with all the mind games with Kevin. I I can't tell. We're
2: not behind the scenes in the locker room. You can't get a vibe as to whether he's playing possum or not. I'm gonna text my buddy who goes to the games, you know, before opening tip, and I'm gonna find out if Sandro's in the layup lines. Maybe I expect him to come off the bench for a couple minutes if that's the case. But until I see him take the court, you know, it's business as usual. The team is playing great. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I, but I am excited that Sandro's coming back.
1: So I actually got a text earlier this week from the self-appointed Left Coast Pirates Ombudsman, Brian Fitzgerald of the Wall Street Journal. And he asked me a question. He asked, does Mamu coming back actually hurt the team's rhythm? Now, I don't think that's the good question at this point. I think everyone's playing great. I think Sandro's going to come back, and he's not going to feel as much pressure to rush into, you know, back into form as, as it's going to take him a little bit to get there. But... I think this is the more interesting question, Mike. Is Sandro still the second-blessed player on this team now? Really? We're going we're to go there? Absolutely. First,
2: first off, I appreciate all the advice on editorial content that Mr. Fitzgerald of the Wall Street Journal thinks he sh- we should cover here on the podcast. And more importantly, I want to thank him for being a loyal listener. But when Zach Braziller tweets out his possible return, I'll use that as the baseline to discuss his importance of returning to the lineup. Regardless, we clearly don't have the same perspective on this one. And for me, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Maybe that doesn't apply to all the fans because, you know, the team success and the emergence of McKnight and Gill have obviously caused some amnesia out there. But how quickly we forget this team was a night and day team versus an inferior Iowa State without Sandro. He had scored double figures in six out of the eight games on the season before he got hurt. He was averaging 12 points and six rebounds a game if you don't count the Iowa State game that brought down his numbers. He was shooting 53% from the floor and 43.5% from three-point range. Yes, Tom, those are numbers of a stretch four, are they not? In addition to his shooting, he was also a presence in the middle, averaging just under a block a game. Like I said earlier, I know we've been spoiled by Gill, but one a game is solid. And last but not least, you know what? He's a factor in breaking the press as he can handle the ball, and he's a great outlet relief at 6 feet 11 inches. Do I need to go on? I mean, this
1: is ridiculous. Yeah, Mike, see, you missed – my entire point and you're missing the bigger picture because of your unrelenting love of all things Sandro it really blinds you we've spent better part of this early biggie season talking about the following We've expounded upon the great game-changing play of one Rogue Gill. And at the same time, we've been apologizing continuously for our original prognostication that he was just going to be the second coming of Rasheed Anthony. I mean, you're talking about a kid that is in line for the most improved player, the defensive player of the year, and potentially... Old Big East, he leads the conference in blocks with 4.3 in Big East play, and he's got numbers that just jump out of the page at you. You've got coaches like Pat Ewan, you've got coaches like Jay Wright saying that with his play, Seton Hall's now a Final Four contender, Michael. Additionally, you're on a roll, Tommy. Tommy. Keep going, baby. Let me preach. (laughs) Additionally, we've been sitting there complimenting Quincy McKnight on how he's taken to becoming the floor general that we've been truly missing all this time. All the while, leading the Big East in assists by more than an assist and a half at eight plus per game. He's also leading the Big East in assist to turnover ratio at 3.56. And he's actually fifth in three point shooting in this Big East season so far at almost 43% per game. Now, Mike, my whole point as such is these guys have stepped up in big ways, big ways in places that we never thought was possible for these guys. We're talking about true production. We're not talking about the things that Sandro has potential to do, like you like to say. Yes, Sandro has got a great skill set, especially for a big man. He does a lot of great things. But I'm talking about numbers now. I'm talking about what they're actually doing. They're changing games, game-changing players at this point. And this is a Good thing, Michael. This lets Sandro come in, meld with the team. Don't try to do too much, because the last time we tried, we saw Sandro trying to do too much. He took some step-back three-point shot in the corner that made me say, do you even practice that shot, Sandro? Michael, I've got you at a loss for words, don't I?
2: No, no you don't, Tommy. Do do I need to go back and replay the audio when we had Gary Cohen on, and he called Sandro our second-best player? This Do was to...
1: all before the current play, buddy. This is it's all right, before it's that. It's right in the middle of that play. This is, well, then you know what? People are blind. Do people I need want, to go back and are read desir- the numerous? Go ahead. I'm, I'm telling mean, you what I see. I'm telling can... you. I'm giving you stats, Michael. I'm giving I'm, you I'm numbers. You what I read. I'm telling you what I also read. Do Michael, I need to read to you the numerous references
2: in like every article out there that mentions and seat in the hall is
1: missing their second best player. What is Sandra? What was Sandra leading the league in before he left? What, what, when was the last time Sandra changed the end of the game?
2: Look, it's not, my. I'm still fault.
1: waiting for it.
2: It's not my fault that others based his high school hype video and decided to compare him to Artorius Karnishevis. I'm sorry. I know how that kind of rubbed you the wrong way. And it's almost impossible for him to live up to that potential. But he is a dynamic player. And he demonstrates a lot of those attributes that Artie brought to the table. And when he plays at that level, he changes the game around him. So, yes, McKnight, fantastic numbers for four assists relative to the Big East. Rowe, changing games with his defensive shot blocking and, you know, dominating at the rim now on the offensive side with the pick and roll. But Sandro has the ability to do it all. Sandro has the ability to cause a mismatch at the four that will give us a leg up against most other teams because now they have to focus on Gill, and Powell and McKnight. And now all the other things that Sandro can do are now going to be highlighted even more because he can play high, low, with Gil on the alley-oop. He can run pick-and-pop with McKnight. He can still rebound on the back end and prevent us from having 19 offensive rebounds in a game against Providence. I'm sorry. You guys are are downplaying his ability and what he can do to make this team that much better just because we are 7-0 and and first place in the Big East and you see a number 10 next to our name.
1: It's not okay. I'm you not downplaying anything, Mike. Ah, I'm not ah. downplaying. I'm saying guys have stepped up and played Way above what we thought their ceiling was you didn't you never had you never had a thought in your head That Quincy was gonna run the point like this neither did I it's a surprise to me We never thought Roe was gonna be at this level and you know what it's time to acknowledge it Mike it's time to acknowledge where these guys are in the pecking order. And I think this will help in the big picture. It's not about being in a pecking order. I am excited to have him back because in my opinion, I'm excited. He's coming back
2: right now. The way the team is currently constructed, they are easily playing as a second weekend tournament team. But when you get into that, we're the two seed and we got to play the three or beat the one for a shot for a shot to go to the final four. A player like Sandro, because he probably is the second-best player, puts them in a position to actually challenge for that Final Four dream. Dream, Tommy. It's there. It's potentially a realistic opportunity, the way this team is playing right now. And I know we've gone all up and down the pendulum and spectrum of, oh, this team is great. This team is now struggling. And they're back there again. We talked about it. If Sandro can integrate himself playing the way that he was playing before he got hurt to the way this team is playing now and nobody takes any back seats. Yeah, I'm excited. The road to the final four is
1: right there. Michael, I'm going to, I'm going to say something to you. We're a final four team right now. The way we're constituted, we are a final four team right now. So Mike, you yes, willing? let's cut it out. But you know I, what? I, I, we've I, got a I, I, second got I, we've got a second game this week against Xavier, the Musketeers of Xavier. We've played them once already, and they've had a rough go of it now since we saw them last. They're two and five in the big east, which is good for seventh. They're having a rough season. Do we really want to spend a lot of time now previewing Xavier? I mean,
2: I, I don't even know what to say. We we had we had Adam Baum on last time breaking it down for us that they have to kind of have certain guys step up like Najee Marshall and, you know, get their senior players to, to kind of, you know, play their role or take it to the next level. And I'm watching them play against Georgetown the other day and their senior leader at point guard, Quentin Gooden got completely benched. They are going through some, some changes right now. They are going through some turmoil. You know, they, they got the win under their belt against Georgetown and they came back out today, and they did not put up a good showing against Creighton. There's not much else to break down. Seton Hall has to take care of business at home against a team like Xavier that's struggling. They have to take care of business against a team like Paul who's struggling. We could go into all the matchups. We can go into, like, who's the X factor for each of these teams. But let me not ask you this. This should be a 2-0 homestand. Or, excuse me,
1: a 3-0 homestand. Considering that we just be Providence no or without a doubt we should we should be able to handle DePaul coming in they're struggling right now We should be and we should be able to handle Xavier Xavier's a total mess at this point Especially that they're going on the road to meet us at the rock and speaking of the road. Let's talk about a positive road Let's talk about the road to 2494
2: See, now that's a good segue. That's a good segue, Tommy. Good job. (laughs) All right. So with Miles Powell scoring 14 points, he still trails Greg Tines for fourth place on the all-time list by 29 with a total of 2,036.
1: Now, so you know, Mike, normally what we do is we wait for Miles Powell to uh, pass a certain player and then we'll give – that player's statistics and give them kind of a historical reference point but last week i was thinking to myself i said you know what instead of us telling the people about this player why don't we see if we could reach out and see if we can get greg on the show so we tracked down greg Tynes, offered him an invitation to join us on the podcast and he graciously accepted it And then the next day, he showed up on campus and took some pictures with Miles. Oh, it's crazy. Left
2: Coast Pirates gets the fans excited. What can can I say? But but no, I'm I'm very happy to have Greg come on the show. Uh, It it should be a fun piece.
1: He played for the Seton Hall Pirates from 1974 to 1978 and is fourth on the all-time Seton Hall scoring list with 2,059 points. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Greg Tynes. Greg, how are you this evening? I'm fine. Good evening. How are you? Doing great. Thanks again for joining the show, Greg.
0: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: So I I saw
2: you were on campus the other day. What motivated you to reach out to Miles Powell on the Seton Hall basketball program?
0: Uh, Well, I wanted to congratulate the program and the team on how well they've been playing defensively. Um, And that's what I told them. Um, I mean, they have some big guys who block shots, but I'm really impressed with how the guards, how they play on the ball defense. They're really good on the ball defenders, and I think they're playing well. Also, I wanted to congratulate Miles on surpassing 2,000 points. I mean, that's a a great feat. And early congratulations to him because I know he's going to pass me, and that's a great thing.
1: Well, when you finished your playing days at the Hall, you were actually second all-time on that scoring list. Now, over the past few years, players like Jeremy Hazel and Terry deHare obviously, and like you said, Miles will probably do it shortly, have passed you. What are your emotions when that kind of stuff happens? Um, any bitter sweetness? How do you feel?
0: Oh, no, I, I think I, I feel... I... I feel good. I feel relevant again. I get to be mentioned a little bit, but, but the game has evolved. The game is more people are going to pass me because um, uh, just like with Nick Workman, when Nick Workman played, who was the leading scorer when, when I graduated, he, you couldn't play varsity as a freshman. So Nick Workman did his in three years. Plus they didn't have a three point line. When I played, we didn't have a three point line either. So mine was all twos and ones. So then they added the three-point line, which which makes it easier to score more points. So because the game is an offensive game, nobody wants to see a defensive struggle. You know, nobody wants to see that in basketball. So with the with the addition of the three-point shot, people are going to score. I don't know if anybody's going to catch Terry now that they moved the three-point line back because it's a further shot than Terry had to shoot. Like Miles is, is shooting a a longer three. So it's going to be really hard for someone to pass Terry because he had a he had the three point line plus it was a shorter three point line. So I think Terry's record is going to stand. I think that's going to be hard to to take over the number one spot.
2: All right, Greg, but but be honest now. If you had a three point line as close as nineteen feet nine inches like Terry did, w- wouldn't you be on the top of that all time scoring list?
0: I think so, but I don't know. I would have to watch a whole lot of film and and. <laughs> and just to see, I mean, I was, I was generally the smallest guy on the floor. So, I mean, I shot mostly jump shots. So, I mean, I would have been, you know, some people say I definitely would have had it. I don't know, but I did what I had to do during my time. So we could always point to someone if they would have had this, or if they would have had that things would have been different, but I made the best use of what I had. Would I, I, I would I like to play in this era? Yes. Because there's, is in my era, you could hand check you could do a lot of things I I would love to play in the era where you really can't touch that much
2: (laughs) going back to the line getting moved out to 22 plus feet I I get it so for the average player it's probably going to make a difference in their ability to score and challenge that record but does the evolution of that line being moved out really have an impact for players like Terry and Miles at you know their level of greatness
0: um, yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would think it does. I mean, I, like I, I believe, I mean, Terry can shoot the ball. Don't get me wrong, but I think miles is the best shooter I've seen at seat hall o- over the years. I don't know anyone that can shoot the ball off the dribble from that far out. Like he can, I think he's the best shooter I've seen Jump shot shooter. I mean, I played with a, I played with a guy by the name of Randy Duffin who could shoot the ball. Um, he can shoot the ball from far out, but he didn't shoot off the dribble like Miles. Plus he he played with me and Glenn Mosley and we took the ball for the shot so he didn't get <laughs> a lot of shots. <laughs> but uh Randy Duffin can shoot the ball. But I think Miles is the best the best shooter the best jump shooter from long range I've seen at Seton Hall.
1: Now, Greg, you, you averaged 18.7 points per game in your career, which is an outstanding number. But your junior and senior season, you really flourished. You had 20 points a game or more in both while maintaining a real efficient shooting percentage. You're about 48% from the floor. How difficult was it to be that consistent when the other team is scouting you as the top scoring threat for the team?
0: Um. I guess it was just the way I was brought up. I played in high school at Orange, and we were the number one team in the state. I only played about half the game because we had a lot of um, a lot of lopsided scores. Where well, I think we led the state in scoring, we went over 100 points maybe 12 times. And remember, there's no three-point line, so we're talking about high school game going over 100 points 12 times. So, and for me not to play a lot, and I was hard to get scouted because when schools came to see me play. I didn't play enough only in big games. I played a lot and well, close games. So I had to make the best of my time on the floor. So I just, I guess I was just an efficient scorer. had to make the the, the best of my um, time when I was out on the floor, because I know was going on the bench. And, and, and as a kid, I always thought, and I tell kids, I say, you know, it's easy to get 16 points a game. And they say, how I said, in the high school game, you can make one basket each quarter and get fouled in the act of shooting each quarter and make the two free throws. That's four points a quarter. That's 16 points. Seems pretty easy when you look at it like that. And that's why um, that's how I looked at it. And long as I stayed within the coach's system and I enjoy going to the foul line, I think if you look, I'm pretty sure I let, um, in my years at Seton Hall, I shot more free throws um, each season than anyone. I, maybe after maybe after my freshman year, maybe not my freshman year, but my sophomore, junior, and senior year, I think I led the team in free throw attempts because I enjoy getting fouled. And I just thought it was an easy way to get a point. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you also had a couple of all-time great scorers on your team as well. What was it like sharing the ball with the aforementioned Glenn Mosley and a guy named Nick Gallus?
0: Well... First, I'll speak with Glenn. Glenn made life easy. I mean, Glenn was a good friend of mine. We knew each other from high school. He's one of the reasons I went there. Um, I enjoyed playing with him before I got there. Um, But Glenn helped me out a lot um, because if my man were to beat me, I knew that he would have to run into Glenn and Glenn had great time in the block shots. So Glenn Glenn made me look like a pretty good defensive player, even though my man was going by me. But my man didn't score a lot because of Glenn. And, and Glenn was an efficient scorer, too. I mean, Glenn could score. Glenn shot a great percentage. Um, also, playing with Nick, um, Nick was the backup uh, for me up until his, my senior year, his junior year, Nick started. That was the first time he's, he started as a junior. So it it was fun playing with Nick because Nick Nick was very good. Nick was strong, a really good defensive player. Um, and then when I graduated, with Nick became a senior, I think Nick might average twenty seven points a game. Nick scored a lot of points his senior year. Um, he probably would have scored more as a junior, but the most of the offense was geared towards me. But Nick was a Nick was an efficient scorer. I mean, I just think that. I think we're really i think our team was efficient i mean we, we had some we didn't have a lot of big name players but we played well against the north carolinas who was a top five team we played well against um we played tennessee with bernard king and ernie grunfield we played well against maryland with john lucas i mean we played the big guys really tough but down the stretch they just usually had a little bit more size than us but um I always thought we held our own in the backcourt, and Glenn always held his own with anybody, no matter who he played against. Glenn held his own. So, Greg, we were already
2: talking about this. The sport is constantly evolving. We've mentioned the three-point line, it getting moved back. We talk about nowadays the freedom of movement. And I remember growing up watching the Big East where, as you mentioned, hand-checking was allowed. There were six fouls. And to be honest, you could turn on a game, and a bench curling brawl was kind of the way the game was played, right? So, describe for fans who didn't get a chance to see you play what was your style, and how do you think it would translate if you were playing in today's
0: game? My style, um, I think today's game, I would ha- um, I think I would probably be able to score a lot easier because the thing that that I had that players didn't have i was usually faster than everyone on the floor um i don't know too many times when i wasn't the fastest person on the floor so i was able to use speed to get by hand checking or smack the hand off me to get around it now you you can't even touch so it would have been much easier for me to blow by people um so my whole game was based on speed i was just fast and everybody so that would that translate well into today's game. You know, like when I played, like I said, it was a lot more physical, and um, they would slow you down by by putting an arm bar or just basically holding your waist. As long as you didn't, as long as your arm was bent, as long as you didn't have a straight arm and holding the waist. I just think this today would have been easier for me because I was, because my whole game was based around speed.
1: Was there a signature Greg Tynes move that people would say, "Oh, there's that man again"?
0: Uh, no, <laughs> no, I would I wouldn't say there was a- was a move. It's just that um, I just thought I played with a lot of confidence. Sometimes I joke around and say I, I took some bad shots because I thought that um, obviously if it's if it's one against none, I'm going to take that. If it's a one on one break, I'm going to take that. But I also thought I had an advantage when it was one against two. I always thought that if I was going at, if I'm going downhill at two people, I can get one of them to foul me. It didn't always work out in my favor, but most of the time it did. You know, I just thought I had an advantage, one against two, and and that's how I played, and I think the game is so much about confidence if you believe, and and, and as long as you don't break the coach's system, long as you can do what you need to do within the coach's system, within the team concept, uh, I don't think you should have a problem. And I just stayed within what coach wanted me to do. And uh, and it worked out. And, all, and the guys, we all got along. So, you know, certain things was expected for me to do, just like I expected certain things out of some of the other players. And we just tried to put each other and give each other the ball in the best possible position to score.
2: Well, I think some of the fans today can relate to that one-on-two and having confidence. I mean, I, there are times that Powell comes down the floor, it's one-on-three, and I think there's no questions asked about his intent to try to score. He's, You know, he's that confident in his yeah. game. So I, I,
0: I get it. Yeah, I've seen him do that plenty of times, and he's been very successful with that. I mean, when you're going downhill, it, it doesn't, you know, one-on-two one on I think you really have an advantage if you're going downhill. I always believed in that. And even as a coach, I was a high school coach for over 30 years. And I got strong guards, go ahead, take it. Take it. And we'll look at the percentages. You can do it 50% of the time you can score. We're okay with that.
1: Now, you mentioned that you don't think Miles is going to break Terry's record. Now, I personally, I think it's almost a catch-22 at this point. Guys that are successful from their freshman season on – tend not to stay long enough to break this kind of record. Do you think that this record's ever going to be taken? No,
0: I don't think so. I mean, Miles had Miles still has a shot, but if he didn't get hurt and missed the two games, um, it, I, I thought he had a really good chance. Like right now, they would have to go deep into the tournament, and he has a chance if they go deep, but I think he's going to get a whole lot of people playing them in a lot of different type of defenses. So it's going to be tough. And like I said earlier, I don't think that if he doesn't do it, I don't think uh, it's going to be broken because one, because they moved the line back further Two, you have to have, you have to come out the gate and have a pretty good freshman and sophomore season to, to, to get started at scoring 2,400 points. And a lot of guys leave. You know, no one, not many guys stay for. If, if you can score on that level, not many guys stay for four years. So, uh, like, I don't. I think it's gonna be hard for someone to um to pass Terry because I don't know who's gonna stay for four years and score that many baskets. It just kids don't stay that long.
1: Now, one final question for you, Greg. Do you think Miles is keeping track of how far he's got to go? I mean, were you taking a peek to at some point in your career, saying, maybe I can catch Nick Workman?
0: Of course, I think he's looking. I think when I went into the season, um, I, I knew what I needed to um, to, to catch him, and and uh, the first ten games or so, I was well on track. And I hurt my ankle. I didn't miss any games. I just didn't score a lot of points. I think I was close to breaking the record for most games played, so I kept playing because I averaged more my junior year than my senior year. Maybe only a point more. I think it was 22-9 and 21-8, I think, as a senior. Um, But, um, yeah, I I think you you just look at it because it's right there. I mean, if you don't look at it, you're going to read it. Someone's going to write about it, so (laughs) you're going to see it. (laughs) So then you're going to look at it, and when you have nothing to do and you sit in your dorm room and you finish doing your homework, you may play with the numbers a little bit. <laughs> I mean, it's just human nature. I mean, it's human nature. You Whether he says he does or he doesn't, I mean, I think he just played with the numbers. I did. I'll just talk about me. I did. I played with the numbers.
2: Well, I even, even Kevin Willard said I had a number for Miles to score every game to get the record. So, I mean, it's out there. We know it's out there.
1: Well, Greg, we thank you so much for spending a few moments with us, and hopefully we can have you back out during the summer for our summer session interview series. We really can't wait to hear some of the stories back in the day, especially uh, playing under Raph.
0: Okay, I love to be here during the summer, and I have a bunch of stories with Raph. Raph is a great person, a great man, taught me a whole lot about life. Not just basketball. He taught me a lot about life. He taught me a little bit about basketball, too, but he taught me (laughs) much more about life. Raft is a great guy.
2: Well, thanks again, Greg. Look forward to talking again over the
1: summertime and appreciate you taking a couple minutes out of your day.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Okay, Mike. You mentioned it before. You think we're going to go on another 2 a week. I can't see it happening any other way. I think we build it to a 9-0 Big East record, and we keep going and building bigger and better things.
2: Tommy, I'm, I'm going to break the Cardinal sin. I know we're allowed to do it because we're fans, but you're not supposed to look ahead, right? One game at a time. I, I got these two in the bag to get us to 9-0. I'm looking ahead and taking care of business at Georgetown oh, to get us to it. I'm going to get this to a solid round number, 10 0 in Biggie's play. And you know what's up next. I'm jumping the gun on next week's preview, but I already got my sights set for a potential top 10 showdown at Villanova. Does the streak come to an end? I I can't hold back my excitement. I'm already, like I said, I'm already looking down the road. I got final four sights set. I'm buying tickets to Atlanta.
1: Miles Powell setting records. It's out of control right now. If not now, when, Michael, we're beating them in Philly this year. If not now, when, but we'll hold that for another day. So, right, Tommy,
2: two wins this week. Two wins, go Pirates, and then we'll talk again. Go Big Blue. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Tony L, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Daziri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. <laughs>